A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today I have with me, I actually I'm really excited to have um, Dr. Randall Bell. Uh, he's the author of uh, multiple books, the most, uh, most, recent of which, most recent of which is Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. And I think it's very appropriate for our times. Uh, Rand- Randall's also been highlighted on, on all the major networks. He, he, he talks on post-disaster, um, you know, basically surviving it and moving through um, has a TED talk. I mean, you've, you've done all kinds of things, Randall, well known out there and, and just really happy to have you with us this morning. Hey, Chris, it's an honor to be asked to be with you and uh, I'm, in, I'm looking forward to it. So, you know, sometimes called the master of disaster. You, I mean, you've got, you've got quite a history of, um, of episodes that you've worked with, you know, recovery projects, which include everything from the World Trade Center to O.J. Simpson, um, John, John Benet Ramsey, you know, Heaven's Gate, uh, the oil spills, hurricanes, all kinds of stuff. Um, but you don't just end up being a master. We all have a story on how we get to where we are. And, um, you know, we always want to share some of those stories with our, our listeners. So, so how does one become a master at something, especially the master of disasters? Tell, tell us a little bit of your story. Where'd you start and how, how did you get to where you are today? Well, sure, Chris. I, I was born in Fullerton, California, which is a town just north of Anaheim where Disneyland is. In fact, you can see Disneyland from my parents' uh, front porch. And uh, two blocks away lived Leo Fender, who invented the electric guitar, and my dad worked for, for uh, Fender Guitars. So that was kind of my home base. And I uh, was born, unfortunately, with a congenital heart defect. Um, so I grew up with lots of doctors and, um, frankly, a lot of confusion. What was going on? Uh, because that was back in the day where we didn't talk about things, you know. And it was kind of, uh, I was in the dark, frankly, about my own condition. Um, I had open heart surgery when I was 11 years old. So that was, uh, that's kind of led to, you know, where I am today and in, in writing this book, Post Traumatic Thriving. But, you know, I grew up um, and um, went to college and, and so forth. And kind of like a lot of young people do in my 20s, I kind of wandered around with different career ideas. I wanted to do something interesting. That was really my North Star was adventure. Um, but, you know, then you, on the other hand, you got to pay your bills and, and develop a skill set. Um, my grad school was at UCLA, where I focus on economics and real estate, uh, real estate specifically. And I wanted to, at one point, I wanted to be a uh, real estate developer. So I took all the real estate classes. And in the process, I took all the appraisal classes and I started getting these appraisal assignments um, things like, uh, hotels and shopping centers, uh, and that kind of thing. And I kind of got into the economics of real estate and frankly, Chris, that, for me, um, it's a, it's a great career, but I, I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something different. So I, I applied to law school. I got in and the day before it was really a pivotal day in my life where, um, I was married. I had a kid, a house, the mortgage, all that. And, and I was going to start law school the next day, and I was floating on the, in the pool thinking, I just don't know if the world needs another lawyer. And if they do, it's yeah. probably not me. <laughs> I, I just get in the vibe that that's what I should do. But I thought, what if I take my skill set in terms of what creates economic value in real estate, and I turn it upside down and look at what causes a loss in uh, real estate, that could be really interesting because I live in Southern California, and there's um, – there's earthquakes damage and there's landslides and there's wildfires and there was a lot of real estate being damaged. So I coined the term real estate damages and I called all my clients. I said, I just want assignments where I'm not, you know, appraising value. I'm looking at the loss in value. And um, that turned out to be a remarkably smart move uh, career in, and also more importantly in terms of my quest for, adventure for lack of a better word. So I started working on all these disasters and then I got the OJ Simpson case and Heaven's Gate 
And then uh, the World Trade Center, uh, Flight 93, it just exploded. I had no idea what was in my future when I made that decision, but it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then the, I was uh, working on the nuclear claims um, uh, with the nuclear claims tribunal with the uh, Bikini Atoll where they detonated nuclear bombs. Right. That was a $2 billion case. And I thought, wow, um, what's far more interesting than these cases are the people behind the, the numbers. I was calculating all the numbers, but I had this access to these fascinating people going through fascinating challenges. And um, that led to really uh, going back to school, earning my doctorate in, in sociology. And I really focused on people that went through horrific tragedies. I specifically, I studied Hurricane Katrina in my doctoral dissertation. Um, and to button up, to button up on your question, uh, the LA Times was profiling my career. They called me the master of disaster. I really didn't like it. Um, <laughs> I tried to, you know, suppress it. And I thought, you know, just go with it. You know, it's, it's kind of fun and it brings more interest to the topic, which I'm, I'm interested in, in uh, having that conversation. So that's, that's kind of the story. Yeah. And you know, it, it is funny because we say a little tongue in cheek, but, um, but, but things that bring awareness, um, like it or not, they're good. Right. Um, and in this particular case, you know, it's, it, it's, it's bringing kind of awareness, at least from, from a severe disaster, but there's all kinds of things that cause trauma in our lives. Um, and, you know, most of our listeners are kind of in the business world. Um, I've certainly done a lot of work in non-for-profit sectors and children's, you know, charities, children's social services. I've gotten to learn somewhat about trauma, um, though certainly can't claim any expertise on it. But when, when you think in terms of trauma, um, how, how would you define that for people? Because, I mean, a, a high percentage of people have had some level of trauma in their life, and whether they know it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the statistics are that by college age, 66 to 85% of us have had uh, at least one big trauma. It could be anything from death, disease, divorce, destruction, you, you, you name it. I mean, COVID is certainly in that category, but I started, I worked on this book for uh, 10 years, so I, I was doing research way before we, I ever, any of us ever heard the word COVID. Um, so it's anything that, that hits us that knocks us down and we have trouble getting up. By that, I mean, two or three months, you know, we should be basically kind of, you know, getting back on our feet. If we're still locked down after two or three months, we're, we're clearly dealing, dealing with trauma, whatever it is. Yeah, and so where, where is that residing? Is that something that's, that, that's living deep-seated? And how, how is it affecting people? Because I think some people live with trauma for many, many years and don't deal with it. Well, Chris, you, you couldn't be more right. I mean, I did that with my myself. Well, that's why I mentioned my my childhood trauma is I did the classic wrong thing. I stuffed it down. I never wanted to talk about it. I couldn't imagine ever talking to you or anyone else about it. It was just a topic I avoided at any cost. And um, and that's the classic mistake is burying the issue. Uh, that's where we start an internal war. It comes out whether it's um, drugs or alcohol or, you know, self-medication, my personal choice of self-medication was workaholism, you know, which is as, as bad as anything else. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an issue that we really got to deal with because we all get hit by trauma, but the school systems don't teach us how to deal with it. We got to learn how to deal with it. No, they don't. And, um, and so how did you, how did you recognize this was going on? What was what was the moment? I mean, yeah, you, you started working on these disasters and some of this other stuff, but but what do you think was the key that 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 allowed you to become introspective and say, oh my gosh, I I, I haven't dealt with my heart issue. I haven't I haven't put that out there. Well, that that kind of came up later because what my thinking was is, hey, you know, I've sat at the kitchen table with Nicole Brown Simpson's family. I've sat at coconut tree logs with people who's lost children to the nuclear weapons test sites. You know, I've been to Chernobyl, you, you name a disaster on, you know, all seven continents, global warming and down, down in uh, Antarctica. I've, I, 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 and I thought, you know, I have access to all these fascinating people dealing with trauma. And some of them are not only gotten back on their feet, they've done phenomenal things. And I was really fascinated by that. As I mentioned uh, a moment ago, Leo Fenner was in the neighborhood. He was fantastically successful and he was, he was disabled with uh, one glass eye and he was largely deaf. And so he had disabilities. So I, I started the research really kind of 
uh, intrigued by these people that thrive. And then I wrote the book, and honestly, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it, but the truth is the book had kind of a um, kind of a preachy tone, like you need to do this and you need to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I um, had an experience where I realized I had post-traumatic stress disorder because I was on the treadmill, my cardiologist, she hadn't even turned the machine on, and my heart rate was 150. I mean, my blood pressure was sky high, and it was evident that I had never resolved my childhood trauma she figured it out, and then we had a real hard, you know, no pun intended, hard, hard conversation yeah. about it. And I, I had to go back and rewrite the whole book in terms of we need to do this, we need to do that, because it was kind of a revelation to me that I was suffering from the exact thing that I was kind of observing in others. And we're all in this, we're all in this together. We all have to kind of figure this thing out. Yeah, it, it, it is it is clear. I mean, you know, the, the work that, that I've done even in the social services sectors, you know, when we take a look at kids that end up, end up in, in different juvenile situations, whether it's juvenile whole, homes um, or even tried in, as adults and put away, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's probably nearly 100% of the time there's some trauma that's, that, that, that's in play. And, um, you know, the question is, is identifying it and figuring out how to deal with it earlier before it becomes a problem. Yeah, uh, th- that's exactly right. And there's the, the good news is in that topic, Chris, is that the science is so good. Um, these things have been researched, you know, out of Yale, out of Harvard, out of Stanford, UCLA. It's, it, there's great science. The problem is a lot of these scientists you know, these are academic journals where every word has 17 syllables. And so I've tried to, I, I can understand it. I read this stuff and eventually yeah. I get it, but it needs to be translated so that we all have access to, to these um, proven techniques to help us heal from the trauma. So the, the good news is that um, we do, the, the science is there. And I think the news is getting better that the conversation is growing. Well, the conversation's growing, but how about um, how about people's attitudes? So, so one of the things that, that I wonder about is, um, so I, I've been, you know, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown's, and you know, she talks a lot about, you know, getting to this point of vulnerability and, and being vulnerable, but also, you know, looking at at looking inward at yourself. She utilizes the word shame, which I think could, you know, could also be translated to looking at, you know, what what level of trauma have you faced in your life. Um, that's all great in theory, right? And it works in practice. But the the hard part for a lot of people, especially I think men in some cases, um, or maybe even many cases, is actually the willingness to take that look. You know, I mean, you know, what about the stoicism that a lot of us have this, well, there's nothing wrong with me, or I'm just fine, or yeah, that happened, but I've just dealt with it. and, and, And they haven't really dealt with it. Well, that's what self-medication is all about. It's to mask the, the and get away and dodge the fact of facing this stuff because it is an ugly, uncomfortable conversation. You know, I loved what you said a moment ago about, you know, the, the youth that you're working with. Um, I volunteer at the homeless shelter in Laguna Beach and, um, and also in the prison system at San Quentin Prison. So these are people who have really hit rock bottom and their childhood traumas, typically the story is they had horrific childhoods that exploded in adulthood in bad behavior. And now they've landed themselves in prison and they don't have the luxury of, you know, self-medication because they're in prison and they, they really have to face what's happened uh, in order to have any shot at parole or really kind of move forward with their lives. And so, yeah, we... That's a common thing, and that's why self-medication is so prevalent because we don't want to, what I, what, what I learned in San Quentin Prison, we don't want to sit in the fire and have those ugly conversations because, frankly, they're embarrassing mm-hmm. and they're uncomfortable, but they're also very, very healing, and that's what we got to do if we want to move past this stuff legitimately. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's so incredibly true. Um, you know, I'm watching our time. We've, we're coming up on a break. So uh, I want to get into some of the topics. And when we come back, I want to go ahead and, and, and actually maybe get into some of the stories. Um, you've had, you've had, as you mentioned, a lot of great experiences. You've been around the world. I mean, you know, all kinds of things. I, I probably talked to you all day out of my curiosity as to what was it like being at Chernobyl? What was like? So I'd love to, to, to dive into a few of those stories and, and, and really hear, you know, some of the stories of recovery that, that you've helped with. I think stories 
stories help all our people. So um, everybody stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and we'll hear some great stories with Dr. Randall Bell. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Dr. Randall Bell. Randall, okay, so before we went to the break, I mean, you've tossed out all kinds of things. Um, you, you mentioned Chernobyl. You mentioned, um, you know, again, it went back to the O.J. Simpson, you know, Nicole Simpson and the family, um, you know, all these different things. I, I'm curious. I want to ask some questions. So Chern- Chernobyl really came to mind. Recently, I watched the documentary on Chern- Chernobyl that was done by, by um, HBO and I just thought that was absolutely incredible. I could not take my eyes off of the thing. And I, I ended up binge watching the whole thing. I watched it, obviously, after the fact. And I can't help but wonder what it was like for those people. You know, I, I, I would really like to know, when you went there, what did you see? What did you experience? What was going on? Well, it was, it was a trip. I mean, I, I pull up, I ha, I would, at the time I was working with PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is, of course, the largest consulting firm in the world. And I had a letter of invitation from the guy that ran Chernobyl, the, the head guy. So I pull up with my driver to the checkpoint and I walk in and there's several guards there that, uh, you know, are kind of the Soviet era with machine guns. And I handed them my letter and I just figured I'd get right in. And they said, well, have a seat. It was kind of a, a barren, like concrete floor, wood table and very uh, Spartan, you know, and yeah. it wasn't decorated real well. Yeah, <laughs> like you see that. in the movies, actually. <laughs> yeah. And I sat down and... Uh, and it was taking forever. And there was all this kind of bureaucratic shuffling. And I sat down with a bunch of the soldiers and it was lunchtime. And, and these guys are really nice guys. I was, I, despite their appearance, they were very friendly and they broke off part of their sandwiches and they uh, broke open a big bottle of vodka, which I thought, you know, vodka and machine guns. I just don't know that that's a good mix. I mean, it was just bizarre. The whole thing was bizarre. Anyway. Um, Eventually, I, after two days of back and forth and, frankly, bribes, I, I, you know, even though I had this letter, I, I got in. And, uh, and I was there to do research on the Bikini Atoll case, the nuclear weapons test site. So that's what I was kind of checking was, was uh, I had read a bunch of stuff, but you got to separate fact from fiction. And uh, so, yeah, you, you get to the epicenter, and there's the, there's the big 10-story gray sarcophagus that encloses the reactor. It was just literally me, the driver, and the the woman who was my guide, um, and we were all by ourselves. We went to the villages, we went to the city of Parapet. The entire time, I gotta I gotta really kind of um, emphasize we were completely alone. It was like being in the movie Omega Man. You're in this city uh, with the ability to go in anywhere you want, any building, high rises, uh, schools. 
anywhere um, completely alone. And the school, the Chernobyl village, Chernobyl's actually a small village, and uh, the, the trees were growing through the middle of the um, concrete and in the middle of the school, and it was just, it was just odd, the whole thing. What shocked me about the whole thing, Chris, is that these resettlers came back in. They were unofficial because there was a 17-mile exclusion area because it was so, so uh, radioactive. But these people were elderly, and the government just kind of turned a blind eye because they thought, well, by the time they get the cancers that you're going to get, they'll be gone anyway due to their age. So it was just a whirlwind of just being on a really bizarre movie set. Uh, but it was real life. Did you have to, to wear any type of protective gear or anything while you were doing that? Uh, I didn't. I did have to have a body scan, and they do a, a kind of a um, process on the bottom of your feet. I once set my bag, my camera bag, down on the ground, and I got scolded harshly because the ground, the, the radioactive fallout is dust that sits on the ground. Yeah. So uh, there's precautions, but the rule of thumb is if you're there for less than two weeks, you know, you're okay. Got it. And, you know, so, you know, the stories of it, you know, the one of the, the, the chief scientists couldn't deal with the disaster and commit suicide. You know, you had you had leadership. Some of them had ignored the signs when things were going bad. Others were trying to raise the flag. Uh, did you have a chance to experience any of those people? And what, what do you think was the trauma that they went through after the disaster? Because obviously then we had they had to answer for it. Right. I mean, this was it's pretty yeah. major. It was a train wreck. I mean, the the Soviet Union had a corporate culture, for lack of a better word, of concealment, of, of a lack of transparency um, <laughs> is an understatement. And, and then you have this major disaster, which they clearly hid from the whole world. And how on earth do you hide a, me- a mega plume of radioactive smoke that was uh, so toxic? Um, but, and people are still in Siberia prisons today because of the fact that they, you know, they were kind of the scapegoats for this whole thing. But uh, from having been there, meeting people, talking about it, talking to the scientists, so forth, it's, it's clear to me that, that there were lots of things in play and it's hard to point at just a few people and say that they're to blame. It was the whole culture that was to blame. And I, I, saw right off the bat that I thought that the whole demise of the USSR was a, re, you know, a result of, of trying to keep the lid on Chernobyl and blowing it. And that just kind of blew up, the, not just Chernobyl, the whole, the whole corrupt system. So it was a big, big mess on all levels. Yeah, it was certainly certainly a catalyst, and 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 people today now. I mean, obviously they have to move on. Some of them, you know, some of them moved completely away from the area, but others didn't have the wealth or the wherewithal to do so. So, some way or another, I mean, you talk a lot about resilience. They they had to have developed some level of resilience in that process in order to just go on with their lives. Yeah, no, it was it was devastating for the the, the well, where what moment in, in actually being in Chernobyl where it really hit me emotionally was I had gone to the Chernobyl village school, but I'd gone to another, what a lot of people don't realize there's a bridge between Chernobyl, a little village and a big city called Parapet. And they were both evacuated. And so I was in the Parapet school and they had big posters. In fact, they got pictures of them, which explained to the school children what to do when the Americans bombed Russia. And I was laughing to my guide. I said, we were never going to bomb you. You were going to bomb us. What are you talking about? And, and she said, no, we were terrified you were going to bomb us. And I was like, well, whatever. So ironically, it was covered in radioactive dust from their own backyard. And, and so we went in one of the uh, several of the schoolrooms. And the teachers, the school teachers, based upon the lies that they're being told by their leaders, thought it was safe. They took all the kids out of the schoolroom down to that bridge that connects Parapet and Chernobyl to admire the brave firefighters putting out the fight. Well, a lot of those kids died, which is horrifically sad. And a lot of them have a big scar on their neck called a nuclear necklace where they had to have their thyroid taken out. So um, it was, it was, that's where it really hit me because at the time, well, I'm still a parent, but at the time my little girl was about three years old and she had these little white shoes at home. And then I stepped over a pair of little white shoes in the schoolroom 
that really brought home that, hey, these little kids were really put in harm's way, you know, almost deliberately by leaders who were too proud and arrogant to just tell the truth to their own people. Mm. That's, that's, it, it just, you know, it's, it, it'll just show you what, what even national arrogance can do from time to time. And not, not that we're immune from it here either. I mean, it, it can happen anywhere. And so that actually oh, yeah. kind of takes me to another, I mean, another thing, you know, um, you know, September 11th, obviously, you know, uh, up until it happened, we used to talk about Pearl Harbor, right? December 7th. I mean, we've had a few instances, you know, Chernobyl, not to use this as any kind of, um, you know, uh, accusation, but is was self-inflicted in many, many ways. Um, what happened with the World Trade Center? It was an attack. That was a different type. That was, those were, you know, those were, again, innocent people, um, not that, you know, Chernobyl was innocent people as well, but but self-inflicted. And here it was, it was really an outside force that inflicted the the wounds. Um, is the trauma any different when when it, when it's an outsider versus an insider? And um, what was it like for you to go in and start engaging with people who were affected by the World Trade Center? Well, well, the World Trade Center blew my mind because um, I was. A world, the 9-11 was on a Tuesday, and we all remember the moment we, you know, we all engage with that, yeah. with that situation. And what was odd for, or interesting, I guess, from from my world was that I was given a speech in New York the following Monday, so less than a week away. Long story short, I called the executive director of the association and everything and said, did you still want me to come out? Presuming they were going to cancel everything. They interestingly asked me to still come if I was willing. I called American Airlines. The flight was still on. I flew in. I can't, I'll never forget landing in Newark, looking off to my left. There were only two people, uh, one other guy on the plane. It was an empty plane. Um, and uh, everyone was very sullen. The airports are empty. And I look off to the left and the smoke is still billowing out of the World Trade Center oh, site gosh. as I landed. So I landed, I, I gave my speech, um, and, and it was just like something I'll, I can't forget. It was just an air of just, sh- we were still in shock. We were all in shock, including, including me. After the speech, I, I took the subway down to Ground Zero, and uh, there were Buddhist monks praying in the streets. There were, I, I'll never forget people coming up to me with flyers and handing them to me saying, have you seen my mom? Have you seen my dad? I mean, people were still looking for loved ones in the wreckage. It was that fresh. And I just was, you know, overwhelmed with a profound sense of, of uh, despair. What do you do? Uh, you want to help. Uh, your heart goes out to these people. And um, on the subway, uh, the subway was the most polite ride I've ever had in New York. There was no pushing or, you know, shoving. It was just everyone was was sullen and quiet and respectful of, of their fellow human beings, which which uh, was in sharp contrast to other trips to New York. And um, little did I know that five years later, I'd be called by the uh, Lower Manhattan Redevelopment Corporation to work on that case. So I guess that was very fortuitous that I had that upfront you know, view of things because I had to make some big decisions in terms of of how to handle that that site. Yeah, I, I can I can't I just cannot imagine. You know, we've we've got people uh, friends who were directly um, impacted because of loss of loved ones. Um, I've gotten to know a number of people that were involved through the years. I've got neighbors here where we live now, um, retired um, you know police and and fire who were who were there, and um, every story is just it's just unbelievable and. Um, you know, if I think about um, if I were in the shoes of, for instance, this one family that we we know, their their son was there doing an internship in college. I, you know, I think he was he was doing a college internship at one of the financial companies, and and they lost him. I don't know how you get over that. You know, I, I I think about you know if anything happened in my kids, what it would take, and and when when your kid is taken away with such a senseless act, um, how how do you move beyond that? Well, you know, Chris, you just said, how do you, how do you get over that? And I'm of the strong opinion, you don't get over it. You get through it, but you don't get over it. Uh, you can't, I think one of the lies we're told in society and um, 
here and there is to forgive and forget. And uh, you don't forget. You're never going to forget that. You're not going to forget um, the loss of a child, which are the most horrific of, of life's experiences. Um, but there are ways to and techniques and things you can do to move through it in a in a healthy way. That is that is very achievable. But but you don't get over it. Uh, it's going to linger till the you know every day of our lives. Those memories. Absolutely. Well, well. So so we've talked about pretty pretty big scale things. But not, you know, again, you also mentioned sitting at the kitchen table with the Simpson family. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, that's a, a much, much more personal experience when you're at that level. It, it was it was really fascinating because the whole world was talking about the O.J. Simpson case. This was right in the middle of the trial. Um, I was working with Lou Brown, but he invited me to his home and I was at the kitchen table and Mrs. Brown was there and Lou Brown was there, um, Tanya Brown and Denise and I, I woke, I, I had a kind of an internal uh, moment where I, it, it dawned on me, I was jolted by the fact that I was sitting in the empty seat created by the loss of their sister and daughter, Nicole, and which were very, very sobering. And, you know, of course, they shared a lot of things, which, which uh, you know, I, I can't really repeat, but I can tell you that I'll never forget Denise is a very wonderful, kind, vibrant, happy person, but she was obviously very un unhappy about the loss of her sister, and she was expressing her frustrations, but there was a moment, and I would, I'll never forget it, where the, in her kind of, I don't want to say rage, but in her disgust over the whole situation, um, um, there was a moment where she just kind of stopped. She just kind of paused. And it's as if a light went off in her head and she said, you know what, I'm going to take all this anger and all this uh, uh, ugliness and I'm going to channel it in my energy into, into helping women who are victims of, of spousal abuse. And I know the experts, they've been coming to me. I, I know I have this access to these people and I'm going to help battered women. And, it, and eventually, and later she asked me to be on her board of directors. And I'll tell you, it, I've been to many events where women came and thanked her for saving her, their lives, for having the courage to get away from these ugly relationships. So that's really, that's really the essence. That was a big wake up moment to me that A, it, the people behind the numbers are far more interesting than the numbers and, and really, um, what what real healing and healthy reactions to trauma looks like because because i learned it from seeing denise brown in action yeah you know it's it's i think it's a it's a great example of what you said a moment ago about the 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 um kind of the whole forgive and forget thing right and so for one i mean i don't know how they could ever forgive in that situation but certainly the not forgetting has allowed in this case denise to channel her energies into something that's helping others and and maybe it's the not forgetting and even not forgiving that's that's fired her up you know and, and fueled her ability to go out and, and help um, these are some great stories um, we, we're up to our next break already so uh, everybody will stay tuned we've got we've got one more segment with with Randall we'll come back and um, maybe talk another story or two but but I'd like to also when we come back Randall start diving into maybe some practical advice uh, for people who are suffering trauma especially those of us who've um, gone through the pandemic or any other level of trauma so stay tuned we'll be back in just a minute Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. 
At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. We're back one last time with uh, Dr. Randall Bell. So, Randall, um, there is one more that I wanted to ask you about, though you've got many, many on your list, and I'm sure a lot of this <laughs> is in your book. But, um, okay, Heaven's Gate. So, you know, maybe not everybody knows what Heaven's Gate is. Um, it, it struck me as a really, really strange, weird, like how could this happen kind of thing. But these things happen. I mean, there's actually multiple examples. You can even think Jonestown, some of those. Um, you, what was your experience with Heaven's Gate? And what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? And, and, and let's talk a little bit about the trauma that some of the people who were involved may be feeling, you know, post Heaven's Gate. Well, yeah, Chris, I'll tell you, Heaven's Gate... I've done hundreds of cases, several of them are well known, but Heaven's Gate takes the cake as being the most bizarre. You know, one thing that I think people are surprised when they get to know me is I'm not interested in the macabre. I'm not interested in in uh, seeing bodies or blood and all, all of the ugliness that is associated with the cases I work on. Um, <clears throat> and that just doesn't float my boat. So I was called by the owner, Sam Fuchisfahani, and he invited me down, but they, the coroner had not finished taking out all the bodies. And I said, finish that up because I, I just don't want to see that stuff. So I, I went down there the day after all the bodies were gone and the house was bizarre. Um, this was a bizarre group of people who, in my personal opinion, made a really bad choice to commit suicide and, and go that whole path on a, a very warped belief system. And um, I got to kind of get some insights into, I mean, I was fascinated by the issue of how did this guy Doe get dozens of other people to go along with this bizarre plan to eat pudding and follow the space bop, uh, you know, the spaceship following hail bop comet. And, and he's very persuasive. I can't even talk one friend and come and help me move a dresser, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how did this yeah. yeah. So it's just bizarre. I was fascinated by, by really how cults operate and how they, they put this control over people's minds. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I don't think it's anything that you can understand. I, I, I myself, I, I cannot understand how this happens. I mean, you know, you got Jamestown. Yeah. There's been lots of ex- examples of, of, of these cults that go wild and I don't know what people are missing in their lives, but but a lot of people were lost, and um, and there there have to be families that didn't know that their their kids were in a cult, or maybe did, but had no idea that this was happening, and and all of a sudden, sudden loss um, of these people who actually believed that they were I don't know going to heaven, going to another realm. I who knows? Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I I don't get it. It was. Um... You know, it's like a lot of these cases, like Chernobyl or OJ, it was just a, a sense of shock that, that something had happened just so, so bizarre. The, uh, I can tell you part of the, the scheme that Doe had to get mind control over people is as I looked in drawers and every light switch was labeled, every drawer, every cupboard, every jar, everything was meticulously labeled. And I couldn't really figure out why. And I was in the house with somebody and she said, you know, the reason why is Doe didn't want people to think for themselves about even the most minute, you know, detail of anything. All the thinking was already done. Mm-hmm. Literally, there was, a, there was a switch for turning on the kitchen sink and, a, you know, a label for it. So that was 
kind of part of his his mo was to eliminate the need to think for yourself about anything. No, I, I get that. And so, so as we think about that, I mean, these were all all events. Now, some things get get dragged out. The pandemic, the COVID pandemic, is is one of them. And so, for anybody who's listening live or shortly after the, the the broadcast of this, we're still in the pandemic. Anybody listening later, just to give some context. So, so this has affected everyone, everyone in the world. And yeah. let's face it, pandemics happen. They happen every year. And and, and um, I'm not sure how much of this. Um, if we didn't have more science, if we would have actually really known what was going on or not, but we have better science today. We know, we know how this stuff works. Um, and whether you were a worker who is at home, whether you're somebody who lost somebody to this, whether you're, you're one of the, the people on, on the side of the fence that believes that the vaccine is a conspiracy theorist, a conspiracy of some sort to, to get everybody under control. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, of, of issues here. But um, my sense is, is that, that they all stem from the trauma we're facing that our world has changed in some regard, right? And it's changed in a way that can negatively impact us. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, what do you think is going on? What do you think is driving it? And then I would love to, to, to talk to you for a little bit on some practical advice for people who are, who are suffering through this or any other trauma. Maybe they've lost somebody. Maybe, you know, could be anything. Um, I'd love, love to hear some practical advice as to how do you, how do you start coping with it? How do you start living with it moving forward? Yeah, I get it, Chris. Well, COVID is the real deal. I got it in January and I was incapacitated in, in all ways for three months. There were nights that I went to sleep and wondered if I'd wake up. Um, I was coughing so badly. I ruptured blood vessels um, in my stomach uh, and then internal bleeding. I, I, I lied to the doctors quite honestly to stay out of the hospital. I just, and it's hard. The way I think of COVID now is that there's a real problem, whether it was induced or nature, I don't know, because there's so much extreme information out there. And it's really hard. I don't have the scientific background to really get at the bottom of it. Yeah. And I don't have a lot of faith in the talking heads uh, on, on the topic either. So, you know, it's, it's real, it's slammed us and it's, it's a deal changer. And, um, and then we're all dealing with, including, including, uh, you know, getting it myself. But what's more important is that this research I did for 10 years on writing this book, post-traumatic thriving, um, that whether it's COVID or the loss of a loved one or losing a job or a horrible, um, you know, divorce from hell, it, pick, pick a disaster. Um, the, the healing is universal and meaning there's certain techniques that work regardless of what that trauma looks like, whether it's an acute trauma or a chronic trauma. Uh, the healing is, is uh, the process is essentially the same. The, the two biggest things I've learned, and I, I really got to give credit to the IPP, which where I volunteer at San Quentin Prison. Number one is sitting in the fire. We, we talked about that a minute ago. You got to find a trusted person, preferably a trauma coach or a therapist um, because they know they know the the drill, uh, but you got to talk about it. You cannot bottle it up inside. That was a mistake I made with my uh, childhood trauma. Is that I didn't want to talk about it for decades, and that was a mistake. And I'm here to admit it and and deal with it. So you got to sit in the fire, find a, a trusted person. The other one, Chris, is grounding. Um, the the research that's come out from Harvard with Dr. Sarah Lazar out of Harvard uh, Medical. Um, school is they've done brain scans and simple breathing exercises that really comes out of Hinduism and Buddhism um, and putting aside religious or spirituality with it, deep breathing exercises, whether you want to call it yoga or Lamaze or meditation, I don't care what you call it. Um, it's very, very simple, but then that, that's why people dismiss it. But you see actual results on the brain scans that deep breathing exercises are very, very healing. So that's a daily exercise for somebody who's recovering from trauma or even not, um, can utilize to really get grounded and, and, and heal from, from the uh, effects of trauma. So, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's funny. I am just listening to you and I'm thinking deep breathing. Wow. I, I think that's probably different than my deep size. 
that I, that I sometimes <laughs> take, you know, you know where, where it's just like, okay, I'm not going to strangle this person or whatever the case may be. That's probably not what we're talking about here. Um, so, so when you, when you think deep, deep um, breathing, I also think in terms of a little bit of meditation, I know a number of people that have done that though. Sometimes I feel like I'm too ADD to, to meditate. I can't seem to slow myself down, but, but, but is that another methodology here? Well, yeah, meditation is, uh, I mean, actually, Dr. Dr. Lazar out of Harvard, she uses the term meditation. In prison, we say grounding because some people have a, you know, connection with the word meditation to something religious, and they, I gotcha. I they gotcha. have a trouble with that. But, yeah, meditation, um, it's, uh, and, and I have ADD, too. I'm the first one to admit it. But meditation really kind of, the, the Eastern world calls it um, a monkey mind. In the Western world, we call it anxiety. It's the same thing. And meditation really kind of calms down the anxiety in the monkey mind. Yeah, so we, we just have to find ways to do it. Now, so, so somebody who might not recognize that the trauma is getting to them. So, you, you know, we talked early on in this, you know, that we self-medicate. And, uh, you know, I'm going to guess that, that a lot of times that's, um, you know, that's almost a subconscious, unaware behavior. You know, you, you mentioned you just dive into your work more. I've done that, right? I mean, I've had days, and then when I pause and really think, okay, wait, what's going on here? You know, we in our company try to do a lot of work with leaders on, on raising their level of self-awareness, their environment, understanding what's going on in the moment with themselves, with their people to help help them be better. And sometimes we try to take our own medicine too, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't know how to do that. A lot of people don't have that level of self-awareness. So let's say we've got somebody that's listening right now and they're thinking to themselves, oh, that's great for everybody else. But, you know, I, you know, I don't think I've got, had any trauma or I don't think I'm dealing with anything. Um, or maybe they're thinking, wow, I wonder if I've had any and I don't know how to figure that out. Um, what, would be some, what would be some hints? What would be some things that would help somebody you know, maybe it's questions to ask themselves or, or anything to, to raise their awareness as to whether they are kind of bottling something up. Well, I can relate to that person who's kind of dismissive because I was that guy. I mean, you, you've uh, oversaw a, a big, big uh, corporate enterprise and I was, you know, um, ran, ran the show in my division with PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is not small potatoes. And I was dismissive of the, you know, the things we're talking about right now. You know, I thought meditation, I, it just went in one ear and out the other. I didn't even give it any thought. But as I kind of you know, got a little bit, uh, a little better uh, uh, informed, I, I realized that, yeah, it does apply to all of us. And these principles are, they, they just really work. They really kind of calm things down, get us, you know, on our new, you know, our true North Star, um, you know, remind us of our value systems. They... It's called grounding for a reason, because what we're doing is we're taking some time to really kind of calm down the mind, all the monkey mind, all the anxiety, and, and remind ourselves of a nice, solid foundation from which, from which we can kind of build the rest of the day. And we do this day in and day out, and we just have better days as a result. So, yeah, I get it when people dismiss it. I was that guy, uh, and I've done it both ways, and this, this way is far superior. Okay. Well, so uh, one other, you know, thought that came to my mind as you're talking and, you know, and, and I mentioned, you know, even in our, our, our pre-discussions here, you know, in, in, your, in your information, you know, you talk about the five stages of grief and how they factor into trauma. And, and so obviously the, the first stage of, of grief is the, the shock, right? The surprise, yeah. the, you know, and then, then, then there's denial. Did this really happen? And, and those, are, I think, I, I think are, are fairly common. Um, and, and there, people go through those in different periods of time, depending on who they are. But, but the one that, that, that I have, um, I've watched people experience and I myself have even felt is the anger piece of it, right? That, that part mm-hmm. where they get angry. And, um, I've experienced, um, especially lately. And some of it I think is, is, you know, I think some of it is, is the results of, you know, the extended pandemic, whatever, but I've seen a lot of anger and we, you can read the, read the news. You hear stories of anger, you see anger oh. everywhere. Um, you know, so is, is extended anger, um, evidence of a, of a trauma? Is it, is it part of it? Is that what's driving the anger? And, and what can we do to break through that? Because it seems to me like it's only getting worse. It's not getting any better right now. Yeah, no, we're, you're absolutely right, Chris, because we're seeing these extreme, you know, polar extremes in the media and in, and in society, and that's not the answer. And we got to get a lid on um, anger and anger management. 
the thing about whether you're talking about the, the initial shock, the denial, the bargaining, the anger, the depression, my approach, and it's really not my approach, but the, the, the academics, the scholars have really studied this. We all tend to agree. These are all normal, healthy things. It's okay to be angry. Uh, in fact, I would be shocked if somebody, speaking of shock, I'd be shocked if somebody wasn't angry, you know, um, about Chernobyl, about, you know, the Brown family losing their sister or daughter, about any of these cases we've talked about, because they're, they're hurtful, they're, they're, they're more than hurtful, they're horrific. And of course, anger is a natural emotion. The thing is, is to realize it's okay to be angry, but you don't want to hurt somebody else and you don't want to hurt yourself. So as long as you apply those two rules, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be really, really mad uh, for as long as you need to. Um, that's a necessary stop on the on the journey. And then you get to, after anger, you normally land on depression. And if you're stuck there for two or three months, you really got to get some, some serious help. You know, trauma recovery is not a solo exercise. You can't do it by yourself. So that, that's my approach on anger is, is it's okay to be angry and, and look at it in a healthy way. Yeah, and I think your 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 last comment there is 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 a good one as well. And and all too often we want to go it alone. Um, you've shared multiple times your story about you know others, and when it, when you finally started talking about it, beginning the road to healing, um, we've heard this many times. This isn't the first show we've we've heard somebody say it, um, but there does come this point in time when talking to somebody else is is the first step. Right. I, mean, I even think about like um, with Alcoholics Anonymous, I think the first first step in the program, uh, I forget how many steps there are, but first step is acknowledging that the problem is there. Right. You got to right. acknowledge it. You got to acknowledge it, uh, you know, purposely and um, verbally to someone or people. Um, professionals are out there to help. Um, but utilize that time to bring some self-recognition. Um, yeah. We are, we're at the end of our time. Uh, I've really loved having you on the show today. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, you know, for our listeners, you know, you've got multiple books, um, you know, the, the most recent of which is this uh, post-traumatic thriving, the art science and stories of resilience. Um, I'm assuming it's available on Amazon as well as other booksellers. Yeah, Postman Thriving's at Amazon, and people can reach out to me at drbell.com, uh, and uh, you know the link for the book is there. But I love having the conversation. I've I've enjoyed every second time you, Chris. Oh, that's excellent. And just for the listeners, uh, drbell.com is is d r b e l l dot com. So don't don't spell out the word doctor. It's d r, and um, it's it's a really great website. Check it out when you get a chance. Um, check out his stuff. Um, I think you'll find it interesting. We only scratched the surface of a lot of good things today. So um, again, Randall, thank you so much for being on the show today. And um, to the listeners out there, thank you for joining us. And I will uh, be talking to you soon. Take care. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.